so I am recording this so that um, we can share it with those who aren't here uh, this evening. I just recently watched the movie Downsizing by director Alexander Payne. You may not have seen it. It was a big box office bomb. It's a big disappointment for the studios. Uh, but he's famous for, for kind of quirky movies, uh, Election, uh, Sideways, uh, Nebraska. Uh, the Descendants was a good one with George Clooney. Anyway, this film was about uh, an, our Earth that is uh, in a serious ecological crisis. And the solution for that is uh, this one scientist, the solution was to shrink us all down to five inches. He found the technology to shrink everyone down to five inches. And in the first four years of, uh, of, the, of his study, um, as they presented this to the world, uh, they, they showed this half bag of trash. They said this was all the waste that, that this colony of, I don't know, dozens of people over five years that are just this tall um, produced. And they said this is a way to make the, the earth a sustainable place. And uh, so the movie uh, follows Matt Damon, who's married to Kristen Wiig. And Matt Damon, we are introduced to him. First, he, he goes home, gets some takeout, brings it home, and he's with his mother. Uh, caring for his mother who has fibromyalgia. We flash forward 10 years later, um, and he goes home, picks up, carry out, take out, brings it home, and it, it's not his mother there, it's his wife. His mother has died, and he's living with his wife in the same house. Uh, things have not gone as he hoped. Um, instead of going to med school, he ended up going to occupational therapy school. Uh, the end-of-life care for his mother cost a lot of money, and uh, as, as his wife in this movie, it showed them touring a, a very large home and she's dreaming of this large home and then it, it cuts to him in the basement with an adding machine and rubbing his eyes like we can't afford this very large home um, and what's the solution well as the people who developed the technology to shrink all humans down uh, they did this as a way to uh, preserve the earth for humanity to lit continue on living but the way they sell it is no matter where what your social status is whatever how much money you have if you're miniaturized you're a millionaire probably so I, I don't remember what they said that this family's net worth was maybe after 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 the costs of downsizing because that that costs money after that they had maybe $150,000 of net worth and they said but in I forget the name of the tiny town we'll call it tiny town in tiny town that's like 12 and a half million dollars because you know, the houses are this, they're like doll houses. And think about, it may cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to build a large house. How much does it cost to build a doll house? A few hundred bucks. So he's like, this is the solution to our money problems, is that we shrink down and we're, we're multimillionaires. And I'm sorry, to, I'm going to spoil this movie for you. Spoiler alert, um, as they go through the shrinking process, and again, he does this for his wife, they, they separate them out because they, they, they knock you out, they shave your head because I guess that like that doesn't shrink down. Um, she doesn't go through with it. So he's in the recovery room. He gets a phone call, and she's like, don't be mad at me. And he's like, what? Wait, what? What? what what's happening? Are you at the airport? And she's like... 
I just, I just realized I can't, I can't go through this. I, I, what I realized is that I really should have been thinking about me. And he's just like, oh, I did this all for you, so we can have this lifestyle that you wanted. Um, he didn't, he didn't say that, but that was kind of implicit <laughs> in his reaction. So uh, we, we see his kind of life devolve. He's kind of this sad sack. I mean, he's just, he's just abandoned, and he's miniaturized. He's like, what? Like, there's, there's no reversal technology. So he's living in this big community, they, 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 um, but, but he's just like, and, and one of the things, you get to like have one little box, maybe this big, but when you're small, it's very big, of keepsakes, and they deliver that to his house, and he opens it up, and it's their wedding rings, like full size. Um, and, uh, but, but for the sake of the movie, you know, not, not all of it makes sense. Like, during kind of the sales pitch, um, uh, they talk about how the big house you have, and, and, um, uh, Doogie Howser, whatever that actor is, he goes up to this other actress, and, and um, she's like, yeah, I had this leisurely day. I went to the gym, I did yoga, I did this, I did that. Um, and again, they open this house, so it's kind of like a dollhouse, and you see her up. Um, this is a sales pitch. She's not actually taking a bath. She's like, oh, you should tell me when we have guests. And um, she's like, yeah, I went shopping, I had this leisurely day. Oh, and then, and then I went to the jewelry store, and he, like, cheesy, like, rolls his eyes. What did you get? And she's like, I got a, a you know diamond necklace in platinum and and uh, and matching earrings. She's like, what did that cost me? And she's like, eighty dollars. Because again, it's very little amount of stuff. Um, so the economics don't necessarily work out. He had these giant rings, but basically, um, through the narrative of the movie, she ran him through the ringer and the divorce, and he ends up moving out of the big house and into a very small apartment. And he has this upstairs neighbor, who's uh, a a, a European who likes to party. Um, and so he's ha- trying to have a date, and he all hears it upstairs. He's like, oh, come on. And he, he goes up there, and he's just like, uh, the, the, the date ends, it doesn't go well. And then he parties. Um, and uh, the next morning, he wakes up. Um, and he, he, he wakes up there, upstairs in, in this, this neighbor's apartment. And um, this cleaning crew comes in to clean up after this riotous party. And he sees this, this woman kind of waddle in. And as an occupational therapist, his eyes just kind of, he sees her kind of waddling. And he follows her. And what he finds out is that she is this, is this um, he, he's like, I know who you are. Like he heard this news story about uh, a, a protester in Vietnam uh, her village was going to be flooded, and she protested the government. The government, as a punishment, um, kind of stole the, the shrinking technology, and as a punishment for political dissidents, shrunk them, put them in a TV box, and sent them to America. Everybody in her box died except her, and she lost a leg. I know this is a long story. I have to say, this is a very odd. <laughs> very odd. But I'm, I'm getting to a point here. I'm getting to a point. She, she's limping because her uh, prosthetic is, is, is not fitting right. And he's an occupational therapist. And he's like, I want to I help you. And in the midst of helping her, um, this guy who went and he changed his entire life, he said, I'm going to go miniaturize myself so that I can enjoy this bounteous life that I haven't necessarily earned, um, that, that I could take whatever I have and multiply it by a thousand. Um, this woman was world famous for having something terrible happen to her. Um, and, and what you see during the next half of the movie, because this whole movie was very engaging, because I'm like, where is this going? Like, like, because it's not just a story about shrinking. It, 
it's not just a story about shrink about shrinking people. Um, but you know they have this utopia. But but once he starts like hanging out with her because he accidentally breaks her her her, her prosthetic, um, what he finds out um, he accidentally breaks it. And he's like, I guess I have to carry you around and do your work for you. I'm obligated to you because as I tried to fix your prosthetic, I broke it, and and I'm obligated to you. So this man who had spent his entire life trying to serve himself, <coughs> trying to feed his appetites starts following her around in her footsteps. And you find out that this tiny town is not just beautiful, large homes, that he actually gets on this bus and drives out of that town, and there's basically a shanty town where she lives, and she lives to serve. Um, and he follows her around, and he finds out that, like, she didn't use her power and fame to serve herself, but in fact took the form of a servant. And, and and like she brought meals from the rich, uh, like things that the rich were throwing out of their fridge. And she started this business, and again didn't live a life life of leisure. She lived a life to serve. And uh, I bring this up because uh, that's that is the basic tenet to to our discipleship, to our following of Jesus, um, is that our human appetites. Uh, we think in our human appetites that we want one thing that that that. that um, maybe a day at the spa will be what restores us and what gives us rest. And Jesus has something entirely different in store for us. That hopefully as we, <laughs> we think we need one thing and God may be calling us to another thing. That's going to be kind of a premise that we're going to have as a church moving forward. We think we may, we may think we need one thing and God may have another thing for us. God may be calling us in the context of, of community to discern um, that, that uh, we may be better in community, discerning the word of God and identifying the ways that God is calling us to put away some things and to say no to some things and to say yes to other things. So if, if what I say this evening is familiar, that's a really, really good thing because uh, if, this, if what I said was new, um, that would be a little bit strange. Uh, I wouldn't be doing my job week by week if this was like entirely like, uh, different from a Sunday morning, but this is all kind of assembling it all in one place and kicking off uh, our our church year together, sort of. Um, you get the privilege of, of getting it all in one place. So first, a word about the name. We're calling this Walking the Resurrection Way, Food for Following Jesus Together. Um, names are important. They're descriptive, and this name is no different. It's a little long, Walking the Resurrection Way. Following food for following Jesus together. It's a little long, but I like it because it describes what we're doing here. We're we're walking like the Christian life is not a static one. Walking with Jesus is a good way to describe what it means to be a Christian. That Jesus calls us to follow. That it's not something like we made a decision at a revival to give our life to Christ. Uh, we're called to follow Him. It's not a matter of getting saved or what they call CYA in the secular world. It's not fire insurance. It's not a hedge against damnation to hell. Now, Jesus is calling us to walk with him and to follow him wherever he goes. And this involves following him to some very difficult places. So it's appropriately called a walk. So walking the resurrection way has a kind of a dual meaning in that like we're walking the way of the resurrection as in Christ has we are united with him in our de- in our baptism with his death and resurrection and we live in light of that um, but also there's a distinctive way that we do it here at church of the resurrection 
we're walking a very particular way. We're an Anglican church, and for most of you, that means quite a bit. I didn't know what kind of crowd we have. For some people, um, I'm going to probably post this recording on our podcast feed. For some of you, that may mean very little to walk in a particularly Anglican way. It's not. Uh, we don't talk a lot about the Anglican way because the way that we walk is thoroughly Anglican through and through. Uh, and it's not important for me, uh, for people to identify as Anglicans more than for them to live and walk as one um, because we think there's value in that. Um, and I've learned from, from experience that I can explain the ways of, of, uh, of liturgical and sacramental worship. And when I explain them, I can kind of see people's eyes glaze over if they've never experienced anything like that. If you talk about liturgy, they're just, if if they're not something like something that's like, that's their seek something they're seeking, if it's not that, then then their eyes kind of glaze over. In a sense, it's it's something that you have to almost experience to really understand what it is that that we're doing. So we don't talk about being Anglican because everything we do is thoroughly Anglican, um, from our worship uh, to to hopefully our our weeks. So I'm, I'm trying to show you a very traditional way of being Anglican without identifying it as such. So um, I just said the word T, which is not a popular, uh, the T word, traditional. Um, it's a word that some Christians don't like, and I don't mind it myself, but it's a touchy one because traditional things can be things that are seen as dry and dusty and useless. Um, in fact, uh, I, I, uh, I, I talked to someone earlier this week um, and I had to explain our church to them, um, and, and they, they were concerned that we were very ritualistic, uh, very ritualistic. Um, and in fact, all churches are ritualistic, um, and, and the, the importance isn't whether or not you're ritualistic or not, it's whether the rituals have meaning, and whether those rituals are, are fruitful for us. And I'll talk about those. Um, but we see tradition as important, as something that we, that we inherit and something that we hand down. So think about that as a tradition. There are traditions that you receive, maybe recipes you receive from, from your parents that you pass on. And so the first uh, scriptural text that I want to look at is 1 Corinthians 15. So we see this as, the, as perhaps, uh, the, the, perhaps, I don't know, the first Christian creed. Because um, it, it, we see something received and something handed on. And it's almost like a, a creed that Paul is reciting in 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to read it starting at, at verse 1, unless you'd like more time to find it. I'll start it. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelves. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. 
Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. So we see here is a tradition. It's something that Paul inherited and something that he faithfully passed on. And if you were there present at, at my ordination service, you, you, one of the most significant parts of the service to me um, was the vow that I had to take to faithfully pass on what I received. Uh, to faithfully pass on. Um, that, that, that this is... Um, something that we receive and we pass on. And so there are things that we have inherited, uh, not only from our, our, our forefathers this century, but our, from, from the very uh, early church that we think are very important and we want to cling to and hold on to. There are patterns which were established by the very first Christians. And you've heard these time and time again as we've looked at Acts 2.42, um, uh, as we've gone through our diocesan values. There are elements of our Sunday morning worship service that are traditional and that there's some that are non-traditional in, in, in the kind of sense of like contemporary or traditional service. Um, there are certain essentials which we don't want to change and there are others which are integral to our transformation. So there are certain things that uh, from Anglican church to Anglican church, you'll see that are, are, are similar. You'll see some, some that are a little bit different, but we've retained those things that we feel are integral for our transformation. And transformation is what we're seeking, right? Yes. So there, there are two passages that I want to point to um, that uh, that are probably familiar to. The first is, is Romans 12. Would you turn to Romans 12? I would bet a number of you could recite these two verses off the top of your head without even turning there. 12th chapter uh, begins this way. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So much to unpack there. I mean, there, there are, are pastors um, that have spent months preaching just on these two verses. But the thing that I want to focus on tonight uh, is both the, the exhortation to, to be transformed by the renewing of our mind and the idea, this, this image of, of, of a living sacrifice. Um, it's kind of an odd image, right? Uh, because sacrifices usually don't live. Um, but uh, I, I point to this as a, as a continual thing. Uh, the thing about uh, us, in, in, uh, apart from Jesus Christ, is as sacrifices, uh, we would be prone probably to crawl away. <laughs> we wouldn't be sacrificed. We wouldn't necessarily stay on the altar. Um, but we're called, in fact, to be living sacrifices. So there's this continual notion to that, is that um, transformation is kind of linked uh, to uh, th- this ongoing uh, process of God working um, of us presenting our bodies as living sacrifices. If you grew up in the church, and I'm trying to even think about our group that's present here, let alone the one that's um, perhaps listening online. Uh, if you grew up in the church, you probably had a strict upbringing. Do I see any nodding or a little bit of nodding? Okay. And you may have come to think of God as a harsh taskmaster, 
much in the way that unbelievers think about God. So whether you were raised in a Christian home or not, you probably at one point had to move from a thought of God as this big uh, judging guy in the sky who was just waiting for us to mess up so that he could punish us. Um, And as you grew up, you probably grew to know the, the grace of God and how the Bible shows this beautiful promise of, of, of how God fixes and he restores the crooked timber of humanity. That he's not just a big guy who is condemning people for their sin, um, but that in fact God is working to restore humanity, to reconcile them to himself. There's a transition that we have to make eventually in our minds and, and really in our hearts. Um, You you uh, you probably I, it doesn't matter where you started but uh, you got this either through good teaching but probably through scripture that um, as we work through the, the narrative of scripture from the very beginning as God was announcing the consequences for Adam's sin that he we we already see a glimpse of his provision for fixing the issue of sin that uh, in Genesis uh, three is it fifteen. That he writes, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. But of the offspring of of the woman, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That the offspring of the woman, Jesus Christ, that God already had provision to fix um, the entry of sin into the world. And we see this time and time again through God's dealing with humanity. That he is not a, a disapproving God in the sky just waiting to zap us. Um but in fact is a, a God who's already provided the means um, to save us. Uh, Genesis 12. Let's, let's look at tw- Genesis 12. The God came to Abraham, Abram, starting at verse 1 in Genesis 12. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and to him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The blessing to the families of the earth was that Jesus would come out of this nation, right? Mm -hmm. That, that that, That God said, I'm going to make of you a great nation, and through that, through Jesus, the world would be blessed. And there are two really interesting ways in the life of Abraham um, that God demonstrates his coming sacrifice. Uh, And this is really cool. Um, We have no ability to save ourselves from our sins. That God had to provide that. That God gave his son, Jesus Christ, to live a life of perfect righteousness for our sake and then to to die and be raised for us. And God demonstrates that in his dealings with Abraham. In two ways. You see, this this uh, this covenant that God made with Abraham was a very very common co- thing in the time that a a greater um, fancy pants people call it suzerains these 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 um, kingly authorities in the ne- ancient Near East would come to lesser people and they would make these covenants these treaties. But the usual way that these were made uh, is that the king would come to the lesser party, to the to the tribal chief or whatever, and um, they would make this covenant. And they would say, if anyone violates this, you know, it's on your blood um, is actually, uh, like, I'm going to kill you. 
And they did this often, they, they ratified these covenants um, by, in fact, slaughtering animals and the, sh the shedding of blood to show the consequences for this. And so uh, we see um, this interesting ceremony that God put Abraham into a deep sleep. And the ratification of the ceremony, they, uh, they had the ceremony where they cut uh, these animals in half. They cut in half a heifer, a female goat, and a ram. But something different happened in this in this uh, covenant ratification ceremony is that Abraham didn't pass through the severed animals, but God, in fact, passed through them, saying, if anyone violates this covenant, God says, I will pay the price. The God, God was already showing what was going to happen in Jesus Christ. The other one is, is that amazing thing um, that happens. So God promises, he says, he takes them to, and he, and he shows them the night sky, and he says, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as, as numerous as the grains of sand on the beach. And yet Abraham had to wait in faith to see that come to fruition. He had to wait, um, the estimation is around 25 years. I mean, in order to, for those of you who are grandparents, in order to become grandparents, you first have to have kids, right? <laughs> and he finally has this kid, Isaac. And what does he ask Abraham to do with Isaac? To sacrifice him. Do you remember what Abraham, what, uh, what Isaac noticed? Isaac's old enough and smart enough to notice something, something's a little off when they set off for the sacrifice. What does he notice? Where's the sacrifice? And what and what is Abraham's response? God will provide a sacrifice. God will provide. Isn't that interesting? That um, kind of in faith uh, that that Abraham knew that God would provide a sacrifice. I don't think he was just deceiving his son. Just come along, because like we'll get up there and and just I just need to get there on that altar and I, I just gotta kill you. No, um, God stopped him and pointed to the ram caught in the thicket. Because God was going to provide a sacrifice. And in fact, the, the place was named God will provide a sacrifice after that. Um, and, and this is just this, this um, almost foreshadowing, these kind of types and shadows of what was to come and what Jesus was going to do for us. So this is all to say that we, were, we um, had to transform our imagination of God as a God who was ready to punish us um, from a God who loves us and was going to accomplish for us what we could never do for ourselves. However, um, what Jesus offers is more than just a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's not... So it's, it's interesting. I think everyone goes through their Lutheran phase, right? Where that goodness of... So the Lutherans talk a lot about law and gospel, and they talk about the law and how the law crushes you. And um, when you, you read Romans and you're like, oh my goodness, like the, the, the law is, is, is very intense and it, it drives me to my knees. And, and um, oh, isn't that beautiful that God um, provides the gospel, the good news, that, that, that like he accomplished that for us. And, and this is a kind of this breakthrough thing in our minds, in, in our transformation of our minds, of, of understanding who God is. Um, but, but we also want to go one step further to say that God is also looking for transformation of our lives. That he's not just paying the penalty for us, that he is in fact working actively to transform your life and my life. Uh, let's, let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. There's a really good passage here. I love it. There's a passage that talks about transformation. Paul is 
very good at articulating this. Chapter 3. Chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to start at verse 4. And hey, if, if I have the wrong reference, just stop me. <laughs> 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting at verse 4. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in that case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that the same veil remains unlifted, because only Christ, through Christ, is it taken away. Yet to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, but where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That God is doing a powerful work in us. A powerful work. That we are not only given the freedom of the forgiveness of sins, and, and that, that, that through Christ there is no condemnation for any of us, but we are being transformed from glory into glory. What a beautiful thing that he has wrought and that he is doing in us. We're being transformed from, into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So that's what we're looking for here with our discipleship, with our following of Jesus. We're looking for this transformation. How does this happen? Well, the Spirit moves where it moves, right? Right? Spirit, uh, it can move inside the church. Uh, I'm sorry, it can move outside the church. It can, but it definitely moves inside the church. Much of what we believe about our discipleship, our walk with Jesus, is that he gives us what we need, not what we want. And this can be a tough pill to swallow um, because that comes with hardship at times. But we believe that Jesus gives us what we need not what we want. We seek rest and nourishment in things that may or may not give us rest and nourishment. But sometimes Jesus says to us, he says, um, I, I have my ways of feeding you and nourishing you and giving you rest. And one way that we know for sure that he does this is through word and sacrament, through, through something that we can't get outside of even corporate worship on Sunday morning. 
that there's something qualitatively different about what happens when we gather together on the Lord's day. So we've each read books that are life-changing. We've each listened to podcasts that are life-changing, that are mind-changing, that the Lord works in powerful ways, in all sorts of ways, um, in Bible studies, in all sorts of ways, but the Lord works um, through uh, word and sacrament in ways that we can't replicate in any other way. That he has, he has designed these ways, these patterns, um, and he moves through them. So part of walking the resurrection way is to gather on the Lord's day as a community to receive from God the food that we can't get anywhere else. To receive the bread of life that God has ordained for us as food for the journey. It's interesting to me as a church planter uh, to be a part of a community of church planters. Church planters just gravitate towards each other. Um, and one of the things, one of the reasons that we gather together is that just the zeal for the people who are unreached. The, the, the thing about planters is they love people who don't know Jesus. And because of this, like there's this whole industry that has sprung up to support church planning. And there's, I mean, it's based on research and there's a lot of good stuff there. Um, but there's something really, really interesting uh, that, that popped up. Uh, kind of recently, that, that, that a very authoritative research-based article was written that said that the age of planting actual, like, physical churches, and I don't mean buildings, but I'm saying the gathering of people on Sunday mornings, that, that there have been writers who've said definitively that that era is dead. That, that They say, don't even try it, because people are busy, they're committed, they're tired, they work hard, um, and the to even work hard to get people to gather together on a Sunday morning is not worth your time. That instead we need to be gathering in virtual communities. To, to be clear, I, I disagree with this. <laughs> to be clear. Amen. <laughs> but this is a, I disagree because this is a, they're like, oh, couldn't we just meet online? I mean, like, you get to show up when you want to. You can do it in your pajamas. You, you, you don't have to deal with people. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> But this is a fundamental departure um, from Christian thought, historically speaking. That Jesus intends for us not just to log into our computer to receive a good message. As you know, the past several weeks we've been working through Acts 2.42. When we read through that early church, and (laughs) and they gathered, and they devoted themselves as a body to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread, and to the prayers. Sure, you can listen to a podcast or, or read a good book, um, but there's nothing that can replace what the Lord does uh, in corporate worship. And you can't rep- replicate corporate prayer either. That's not something that it's it's really good to have te- technology, and I'm really glad that we can share prayer requests over email and things like that. Um, and and I've had people pray for me over the phone, and I'm really glad that we can do that. But nothing can really match people meeting in the flesh to pray together. And corporate worship, um, that is the worship of the body of Christ, uh, all of us when we gather together on the Lord's Day is qualitatively different. um, Because when the church gathers, um, we have this humble meal, and in that humble meal is the presence of Jesus Christ. Do do you know, uh, one of the reasons that I think, many people think that church, the actual churches that meet on Sundays, like, are on the way out? I think one of the big reasons is that um, the obvious reasons. Okay, we're overcommitted. Kids have soccer, um, sports tournaments. Uh, they schedule games on Sunday mornings, and that's really annoying. Um, 
we overcommit ourselves, we overextend ourselves. There's, there isn't time. So that's kind of the obvious. But I think the other one is that um, it's hard building relationships. And if and, and I, it's it's interesting. I don't want to uh, I don't want to rag on young people, I, but I do want to um, prophetically call to a culture that loves to cancel plans and just stay in and watch Netflix and and feed our appetites um, rather than doing the hard thing of because you know what people are hard. Um, Who would want to associate with us, right? Um, I, I heard a really, really good sermon uh, one Sunday at, at First Lutheran um, where, where I remember Meg uh, mentioned to me that how much she enjoyed it. And basically the, the pastor's point was like, uh, like what's easy about, uh, like there's someone homebound. He's like, uh, yeah, you have it easy because you don't have to show up with the body. With all these people who have like, when, when, when we gather, there's conflict, right? There's conflict. Uh, and it takes time and effort to build trust. It's work. We think differently. We probably vote differently. We're, like we're a diverse body of people, and yet God is is kind of calling us to this community. God is got, trying to give us something that we need, not something that we want. That as God calls us to build community on Sunday morning with people different for us, maybe He's preparing us to build community in our neighborhoods and at, in our workplaces and uh, all the places that we go um, as we reach out into a world that doesn't know Jesus. That's what God is calling us to. So one of the things I said that is amazing on Sunday mornings is that Christ is present, that Jesus Christ is present on Sunday morning. So there's that, but there's something else besides the presence of Jesus that we experience um, when we do corporate worship. And that is the reality that you, what you and I need is not necessarily more information. Um, there are a lot of churches that are um, built and oriented. They build their services on the fact that we need more information. Um, and if you even think about the structure of the services, you have maybe a few songs at the beginning, and then you have a sermon, a lengthy sermon. Because, in fact, we think what we need is more information, when, in fact, what we probably need is new practices. Um, that, that we need new practices, not only on Sunday mornings, but in our daily life. That Jesus is calling us to that. Um, and so that uh, that word um, uh, that that word that we use is liturgy. So liturgy comes from the, the word of, of the Greek word of work, that um, the work of the people. Um, so even if we would, were to compare ourselves with a church that's considered non-liturgical, and we even think about the the architecture of it. Um, picture a non-liturgical church. You have a stage, and you have lights illuminating the stage. Um, and what does that say about what's important in that service? Where is the important stuff happening? On the stage. Where would you say that the important stuff is happening? With the people. In the hearts of the people. And so we try to we try to call people to worship with our whole bodies. We stand, we sit, we kneel. Um, we hear the word um, proclaimed, um, and we stand and we and we respond to it. We respond to it in faith in, in the words of the Nicene Creed, and we respond to it um, every week. We have an altar call when we come forward for Holy Communion, and we are formed as worshipers in Holy Communion as we come forward empty-handed. And it's not an altar call in the sense that we're rededicating our life to Christ, but in fact, we experience Christ's tangible commitment to us through his body and his blood. 
and we come forward empty-handed. And even, even the act of coming forward empty-handed and receiving Jesus Christ is a way that forms us as worshipers who receive Christ's grace with empty hands. We experience, as Paul wrote in his first letter to the Corinthians, we experience a participation in the body of Jesus Christ. This is part of the basic truth that Jesus feeds us in ways that we need, not in the ways that we want. It's the most basic part of following Jesus. He feeds us. Uh, we might prefer to lie in bed on a Sunday morning and listen to a sermon on our phone, but Jesus has so much more for us in our discipleship. We feel overextended in our commitments, and church can seem like just another thing. Has that ever felt like it, that church is just another thing? But maybe God is saying to you to say no to other things so that you can say yes to him. But there's another aspect to walking the resurrection way. And I think a great flaw in, in discipleship programs is um, that we think that what we need most is just to just sit at Jesus' feet and receive and to just receive and to just receive. And not that that's bad. It is absolutely good to receive uh, and to build up our, our, our minds uh, after all, the transformation is by, as Paul wrote in, in Romans 12, it's by the renewing of the mind, right? That's a very important thing for us to sit at the feet of Jesus and absorb. But it would be selective reading of Scripture to see our discipleship simply as sitting at Christ's feet and, and being fed um, through the Word. So let's, let's uh, there's two, two, a few passages I want to look at here. Um, and the point that I want to make with these passages is an integral part of our discipleship is not just us hearing Christ's word, but us making disciples, us being sent into the world to make disciples. So the first one, of course, is the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Um, if you would turn to Matthew 28, starting at verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So, of course, what we hear, go, therefore, and make disciples. So, yeah, obviously, part of our discipleship is to go make disciples. But part of that um, call to go make disciples is teaching them all that I have commanded. And what is he commanding here? To go make disciples. Yeah. <laughs> so as we go through and, and, and it, as we make disciples and teach them all about Jesus and all about the truth of Scripture, a very integral aspect to that is to make disciples. The disciple-making isn't just something that, uh, that is reserved for the few, for the few who have the gift of evangelism, but it's for all of us. Uh, so I think I've, I have two more passages. Uh, the next one comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. 
But what we are is known to God, and I hope is it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and trusting to us the message of reconciliation. And here's the key verse. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Let me read that again. And I know I stopped in the middle of verse. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. But you might say, I don't have the gifts. This is where we get to our next reading. This is John chapter 4. Would you turn to John chapter 4? We're gonna read. We're gonna read a big chunk of scripture here. That's good, and that's okay because we're almost done. <laughs> now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, weird as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, 
Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one that you have now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. So what do we see here? Just just to summarize this awesome passage, and let me say, we're going to have a time of fellowship after this. Um, you should probably talk um, to the man who literally wrote the book on John before you leave tonight, and that is Paul Rainbow. Um, and he can give you a little bit, a lot more insight than than, um, than, than I could ever hope to give. Um, but what do we see here? We see Jesus meet a woman. What do we know about this woman? Samaritan. Five Five husbands. No. Sinner? Is that what you're saying, Cliff? No. Five <laughs> Living with a woman, shack, shacked up. <laughs> she clearly had uh, an interest. Had an interest. Had an interest. Um, how long would you would you guess her encounter with Jesus was? Ten minutes. Yeah, ten, like ten minutes. A few, few minutes. And what did she do after her, her brief encounter with Jesus? She told everybody about Jesus. Did did she have a seminary degree? It, it tells you that there's a lot of worshippers in some unusual situations because these people were interested in knowing about the Messiah, mm-hmm. even though they were mm-hmm. confused. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So we have a little bit more of a challenge. People are not looking for the Messiah. But we can still fulfill that call um, wherever God has a place for each of us um, in our gifting to point to Jesus. Whether we are, sorry. The oddity that I'm thinking about is how many Muslims are interested in being followers of Jesus. Mm-hmm. A very unusual place to be looking for new followers. And the, and, and the mission world has come here to Sioux Falls. You don't need to go far. To, to encounter these people. That Jesus has something, that God has something for you in your gifting, in your context. You don't even need to go far. 
And so we're, we're going to talk with this more about that at, at another time. Um, and we'll talk about how we share that, how we can testify to the work of God in our life, because God has something for all of us. Um, so to circle back to walking the resurrection way, food for following Jesus together. Walking the resurrection way in this season, in this season, uh, we're not going to put a cap on it, but we're thinking at least from now until the end of May. Walking the resurrection way in this season entails several things. Corporate worship, of course, in Sunday morning, but then what I'm going to talk about next. We're going to gather on one Sunday a month um, for times like this. Um, I'm not going to be teaching every time. There will be a different topic every time. This is kind of just um, setting the broad path, talking about definitions and setting the agenda. But we're going to gather for for food and and fellowship and for a time of teaching once a month as a whole body. Um, And God feeds us. God's going to feed us on Sunday mornings. God's going to feed us on Sunday nights. And God is going to feed us in a different way as well. During the season, we're going to do large group assemblies on Sunday night, and we're going to do spiritual friendship in between. What, you may ask, is spiritual friendship? I'm very excited about this. So, um, just to briefly talk about what, what, what our hope is, uh, many church sub, churches subdivide into small groups, or life groups, or cell groups, or Bible st- whatever uh, term they have for them. But we've kind of discerned at this time that we're going to gather on Sunday nights for um, for group teaching and for group fellowship. And then um, we, we think that God is calling us to something else as well in, in this season. Um, and again, we don't want to ever put a cap on what the Lord is doing. Um, but um, in our walk with Jesus, in our following Jesus, in our discipleship, uh, we want this to be a, an integral part. But we also want spiritual friendship to be a part. Um, and again, one of the premises is that God feeds us in very specific ways that may be different than our ways. Um, and that we find spiritual food and drink uh, through Jesus um, on Sunday mornings, but we also find rest in him, in, in, in relationship with others, in time alone with him. And so what our hope is, is for, for each of us at Church of the Resurrection to find um, at least one other person. We're not going to cap it at two people, but we're hoping that everyone can find one person and over the coming months, um, meet with them, uh, hopefully at least twice a month, uh, more frequently as, as your schedule allows and as the Holy Spirit leads. Um, if we can meet every week, that would be great. And, and the, the idea is if, if, you're, if you're just two people, it's, it should be easier to kind of figure out what time works for, for those two people. We've had time in the past, uh, some difficulty scheduling um, small group time as far as uh, conflicts. But uh, there's, there's kind of a biblical call uh, for like what that looks like. First um, Thessalonians 5:11, uh, Paul wrote, "Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted." I feel like that's not the reference. The reference I was going to read was, "Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing." Um, so there's this, this scriptural model of building one another up of uh, supporting each other, um, uh, of reminding each other who we are generally. And so uh, I feel like I've been talking to a long time. So um, Amy and Ryan, if you could kind of just cut me off if, if I um, – I'm going to share this in, in, a, in an easily uh, accessible document. I don't have that document yet. 
Um, but my hope is is that we take an hour um, one-on-one to meet with somebody and to, to just uh, give some guidelines as to what that hour is, is to use that time to pray together, um, to, um, to spend some time with accountability. And I want to be clear what accountability is. Um, is that accountability is not a way of 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 um, of being ashamed of our, our sin or things like that. But accountability has, has two different sides to it. Accountability um, is as we get to know each other and as we feel comfortable, we share the things that we're struggling with. That the Holy Spirit has laid that burden on our hearts. Um, and and as we meet with somebody, that we can share. Uh, like I'm really struggling with this, and week by week we can be supported by another follower of Christ in uh, those things that we struggle with. Um, but there's the other side of accountability is that are there things, some things that God is calling you to that you haven't done yet? So we talk about sins of, of commission and sins of omission. Like, do you feel a, a burden from the Holy Spirit that God is calling you to share Jesus with a coworker or with a friend? Um, are, are there... Are there things that Jesus is calling you to that you haven't been doing yet? Um, and and uh, I feel like I've talked a long time. I wonder if, if Amy or Ryan could kind of share a little, just a few minutes on kind of this vision of what we're what we're hoping for. W- would you mind me putting one of you on the spot?